Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. First Samuel chapter number 16. Of course, we are continuing uh, our study on the life of David. And as per usual, we're not really going to look at David a whole lot this morning. Um, but if you if you study the Bible or read the Bible uh, regularly and faithfully, you'll notice, uh, or you should notice, the Bible is is full of of gaps where there's big narrative sections of the Bible. A lot of stuff's happening. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of things going on, and all of a sudden it seems like the action stops, uh, like nothing is happening anymore, uh, and it just seems like all of a sudden. God's gone away. You know, sometimes these gaps, they represent large gaps of time. And usually we, we just kind of read right over them. We kind of blow over them. One of the, the problems, and I'm, I'm not, one of the problems we have the Bible, calm down, don't stone me, is the chapter and verse divisions. They are not God-inspired. They, are, we put, they were put in there by man. And so sometimes we, we have this uh, end of a chapter and we stop reading because we're at the end of the chapter. We pick it up the next day, and we miss the fact that these events are happening in real time. And you know, so, sometimes we, we gloss over. For instance, in, in Matthew, uh, we know the story of Jesus where he's he's rebuking the uh, the people for for giving. You know, he's, all these rich people are coming in and they're giving all these great things and all these. Uh, the, the, you know, he talks about you know, should you give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and just this huge thing about giving and how these rich people are giving uh, to receive glory for themselves, and he rebukes and rebukes and rebukes them. Chapter ends, picks up the next chapter with the widow's might. And so, oh, no, I'm sorry, it's backwards. He, he, he talks about the widow and blesses her for giving out of her abundance. In the very next chapter, he, con- he uh, condemns the rich people for giving out of their abundance. So you, you kind of can miss what's really happening there. Is Jesus rebuking the woman for giving, or is he... What, what's going on? And so we, we look at these chapters and these verse uh, breaks, and we kind of blow right over these things and don't really pay attention to what's going on. Uh, but whenever I come to these kind of gaps in time, I always wonder what the people in the story felt during those gaps. You know, God is doing so much. He's working in their hearts. He's working in their lives. He's, you know, anointing David king. He's setting up Saul. Just so much is going on, and then all of a sudden, he seems to vanish. God stops working. God is just nowhere to be found. Uh, Did he forget about him? Did he give up on him? You know, what are they facing when they're dealing with these things? And we see one of those gaps in 1 Samuel chapter 16. God sends Samuel down to Jesse's house to anoint David as king over Israel. And there's this huge uh, story we're going to look at today where God's, uh, where Jesse brings all of his sons, forgets about David, and you know he, he anoints David as king of Israel. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit rushes upon David in an incredible way. He feels the power of God. He's, he's filled with the Spirit of God, and he is the newly appointed God-filled king of Israel. But then nothing happens. Years go by before David ends up in the kingdom. He doesn't become king for another 15 years. 
So David is anointed king over Israel. This incredible event. And then this huge gap of time. What did David feel? What was he thinking as he left? You know, he leaves the house. He's still got the oil on his forehead where he's been anointed. He feels the power of God and it goes back to the sheep. How's it? What's he feeling there? You know, God, you did this great thing, this wonderful story, this powerful event, and then you just, you left me. He doesn't immediately become king. He doesn't go to the palace to try on robes or, you know, he doesn't get council advisors together to kind of plan out his vision for the nation. He goes back to the field and he watches sheep. And I wondered, what was David feeling? Maybe right away he was like, this is awesome, this is going to be great, but what about after year one and year two and year three and year four? And as the calendar ticked by and nothing happened, did you feel abandoned by God? You know, as I, as I prepare uh, messages for the church, I have to dissect and kind of figure out and, and interpret a lot of really difficult to understand passages. But the hardest part of the Bible to understand for me are these gaps in the story. Where there's times where God seems to be taking a, a coffee break. And where did he go? Did he, does he have other planets he has to deal with? And Earth got just you know too much attention, and so he's like, all right, I can't deal with Earth right now. I got to deal with Earth 2.0. They're in trouble right now. You know what do I got to deal with? Um, worse are the times where there's gaps in my own life, where God's working, God's moving. I, I feel Him. I hear Him. He's doing so much, and then it's like He goes on vacation. It's like, well, God, you you were just doing so much. What happened? He's there one minute, and then he ghosts you. You know, does does he have more important things to do, or or maybe? And I've had these thoughts, and I know, you know, sometimes I say this stuff, and y'all like, you're the pastor, I'm supposed to have these thoughts. Sometimes during those gaps, I think, was was any of it real at all? Is God really working in my life, or is this just a string of coincidences? Where things just happen... To work out. These are emotionally emotional moments. And it's really hard to walk with God during those gaps. The other most frustrating times in my life where, God, I felt you a week ago, a month ago, year ago. I knew you were there. I knew you were working. I knew you were active. And now, God, you just abandoned me. But I still got to go on. I still got to walk with you. I still got to pray to you. I still got to read your word, and i still got to prepare a message, i still got to lead other people, but it's hard to do it during those gaps of God's activity in my life. So here's what we need to learn. The times in our lives where God seems to be doing nothing are the times that He is actually doing the most in my life. And that's what we see in the life of David. So let's start reading in chapter 16, start reading in verse number 1. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go, I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. This is what we looked at last week. Saul, of course, when he's anointed king, he looks good on the outside. The whole nation expects him to be a great king. He's tall. 
He's handsome. He's he's rugged. He's a warrior. He seems to have it all together. He starts out really, really good. He's trusting God. He's relying on Samuel. He's doing everything God's asked him to do. But as the years go by, he stops trusting in God and starts trusting in himself. He becomes very jealous, very selfish, very paranoid, and starts doing things that God has told him not to do. And eventually he goes down to the Amalekites, and God told him, kill every Amalekite, wipe them off the earth, don't touch anything, you know, kill their kids, kill their animals. And yes, it's harsh, but we looked at that last week. But, you know, destroy everything. And Saul takes the people down, incredible victory, but he spares all the animals, and he spares the king, Agag, to bring back as a trophy. And then when, when Samuel confronts him, Saul says, well, the people made me do it. And so God washes his hands of Saul. He says, I'm done with Saul. He's no longer king. Samuel is heartbroken. This is, I mean, he put everything into, into Saul. And Samuel's getting older. He's not a young prophet anymore. He's not going to be around a whole lot longer. So he's getting older. He's like, God, you, you had me put all my effort and all my prayers and all my time into this guy. And he, he, you, you've rejected him. And what am I going to do? And so God tells him, look, I, I've cut him off. He's no longer part of what I'm going to do. So stop wallowing in what is going on with Saul and get up. It's time to move on. And he sends him down to Bethlehem. He goes, I want you to go to Bethlehem, and I want you to find a guy named Jesse. One of his sons is going to be the next king. So Samuel, we're going to skip some verses here. Samuel goes down, finds Jesse at uh, kind of a public auction house finds Jesse at this public meeting and goes and says, Hey, Jesse, God has sent me down here. He says, One of your sons is going to be the next king of Israel. And Jesse knows exactly who it's going to be. He says, It's got to be Eliab, my oldest son. He's, he's tall. He's handsome. He's a mighty warrior. Sound like anybody we know? Sounds like Saul. So look at verse number 6. <clears throat> it says, And it came to pass... When they were come, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Samuel gets there. He sees Eliab and thinks he looks just like the king. He's tall. He's good looking. He is the obvious choice. But of course, he's made that mistake before. But look at verse number 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeketh not as, seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So God reminds him, says, look, this is the same mistake you made with Saul. He looks good. He's, you know, on the outside, in the culture, he has the obvious choice of who man should have as their king. But he doesn't have God's heart on the inside. So God tells Samuel, I'm looking for something different from the next king. I'm not looking on the outside. I'm looking on the inside where it matters. And the, the rest of uh, 1 Samuel, it really shows, if you read the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, it shows Eliab's true self. Eliab eventually, he becomes arrogant. He becomes critical. He becomes untrusting of God. So his, his true self is revealed. And God says, look, don't look at his outside. His outside is not what I'm looking at. His outside, what is important is the heart. So look at verse number 10. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hath not chosen thee. So 
Jesse, uh, Samuel goes to Jesse and says, look, I know you think Eliab's the right choice. I mean, I thought he was the right choice, but God says no. Let's look at the rest of your sons. So Jesse brings the rest of his sons in front of him. The next to youngest, the third youngest, you know, all, he brings the oldest, the third oldest, the fourth. He brings all seven of his sons, and every one of them, God brings, uh, Samuel brings, he brings it before Samuel, and God says, that's not the one. That's not the one. That's not the one. So he goes through seven of his sons, and God says no. So then, in chapter, in verse 10, uh, Samuel asks him, says, do you have any more sons that I'm not aware of? Look at verse number 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are, there, are, are, are here all thy children? And he said, there remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, go, uh, send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he cometh. Now, this seems like an odd question. To ask a father, hey, do you have any more kids? And it sounds like one of those, those boomer parents, you know, at 10 o'clock every night. And it's 10 o'clock, do you know where your kids are? Kind of the government remind him, hey, you have children. But I gotta, you know, gotta understand with Jesse, he's he's got eight sons already. So, you know, I have trouble remembering my kids' names. When somebody's when there's when somebody's yelling in the house or something, I, I always go through every name in the house. Usually starting with the dogs. Scarlet, Pepper, Jet, you know, I'm going through all the dogs before I finally get to Alexis. Stop picking on your brother. Uh, and so I kind of can can adjust can understand what Jesse's going through when he forgets that he has a son. Now, David is the typical last-born son. He's got nine sons by the time David came around, and so he gets forgotten about. He's kind of the, you know, it's kind of like with, with our kids, uh, Parker, when Parker was born, we have pictures of everything he ever did. We have the picture of his first poop. We have the picture of everything. Picture upon picture upon picture. Of, of Connor, of, of Parker. Connor came along. We have a lot of pictures of Connor, but not, you know, not as many as we did with Parker. We have the big milestones. You know, he's walking, his first birthday. I do I do have a picture of him sitting on the toilet reading the funnies like I do with, with Parker. So I have those pictures. And then Lexi came along. Now, Lexi is a little bit unique because she's the only girl. So everybody's got pictures of her. But in my family, you look through my mom's photo album, you ain't gonna find me. I'm the I'm the fourth and the last boy. So we got Jamie, we got Bryson, we got some of Damon, and then Monique. And they're like, where's and she just finds pictures that look like me and oh I think this is I think this is Sean. No mom, the day says nineteen seventy four. I was not born yet. And so David is is me. He's forgotten about, he's the last son, whatever. He's out there doing whatever. Um and so Jesse forgets about him. Then look at the rest of chapter number, verse number 11. He says that, uh, look at it again. He says, uh, there remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he keepeth the sheep. The Hebrew word for youngest there is the Hebrew word katan. And it's an interesting word. When we read it as youngest, think, oh, he's the, he's, he's the youngest kid. He's the baby of the family. Um, it, it, it's, it, it, it really literally means insignificant and unimportant. Can you imagine calling your kid that? That's the, that's the unimportant one. But it's worse than that. The root word is the word cat, which means to loathe or to hate. In Hebrew, Jesse literally says, the one I hate, the one I don't care about, he's out in the field. Well, why would you want him? 
He's the worst of the worst. And, and where is this unimportant kid? He's keeping the sheep. He's not even invited to meet the prophet. The prophet is coming to dinner. Now, you know, it's like if, if, if y'all, you know, I'm coming to your house to eat, y'all wouldn't care. Uh, let's see, another, a preacher y'all care about came to eat. No. But, you know, you have somebody important coming to your house to eat, you know, you clean the house, you, you take care of everything, and you, you want the whole, all the kids going to come here and meet this important person. Here is the most important person in Israel. He is the prophet of God. He is coming to Jesse's house. And David is so unimportant, and David is so unliked. He's not even invited to meet the prophet. He's left out in the, in the sheep field. And keeping sheep was considered the lowest job in Israel. You know, it was the job that, every, that needed to get done, but no one wanted to do it. This job, keeping the sheep, it's like the job of the guy who follows the parade and picks up all the poop that the horses leave. Who wants that job? Nobody wants it, but somebody's got to do it. And so no one wants to be the pooper scooper, but someone's got to be the pooper scooper. No one wants to be the shepherd, but somebody's got to be the shepherd. So we give it to the youngest kid that no one cares about and no one likes. So Jesse asked, or Samuel asked him, why, why isn't he here? I told you to get all of your sons, not just the ones you think are worthy. Let's look at verse number 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now this again is an interesting description. And I wish we had power because I had pictures to show you what David really looked like. The word ruddy means red. It's only used three times in the Bible. It's used to describe Esau when he was born. And if you study it, Esau was a, a, a hairy kid with flaming red hair. And it's used to describe David twice. So David, he's probably a red-headed Jewish boy, which is odd. But it also says that he has a goodly countenance. Now, literally, goodly countenance means beautiful eyes. So basically, David's a red-headed kid who's just got stunning eyes, which I think is a weird way to describe someone. You know, if you, if you ladies, y'all are lucky. If you're going through a checkout line and you see a, there's a checkout lady there and she's got beautiful, y'all can say, you've got lovely eyes. Oh, thank you. Everybody tells me that. I can't do that to a dude. I can't go to a guy and say, man, you got some beautiful eyes, man. It's weird. Uh, but here's what, you know, God is Jesse is saying, you know, David comes in and Samuel says, man, that kid, he's redheaded, but man, he's got stunning eyes. Um, so basically, literally what this means was David was a redheaded kid who was cute. He's a cute little redheaded boy with really nice eyes. Not what you want in a king. You got this, and again, we're coming from Saul, this tall, strong, manly man. Then you got Eliab, another strong Tall, manly man. The pictures I had was this, you know, this dark-haired guy with the beard, you know, kind of like a lumberjack. And then you got this little red-headed, freckle-faced kid who's, yeah, he's got beautiful eyes, but who wants the red-headed kid as their, as their king? But this is who God has chosen to be king. This is who God has chosen to be a warrior for the nation of Israel. Then look at verse number 12 again. <clears throat> uh, verse number 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, 
So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. His brothers don't like him. He's probably in the field, but Samuel, go find David. Why didn't God just tell him who to pick? Why did he make him go through every single son to find David? He, he did it for a purpose, and I want to put out three reasons we see from the Bible. The first reason that Samuel, that we have this story here, is God chooses the unlikely. This is the most recurring truth in the entire Bible. God doesn't pick who we think is the obvious choice. In Genesis, God chooses the meager, humble offering of Abel over the rich offering of Cain. He bestows the blessing to the younger, wimpier Jacob, not the firstborn, strong woodsman Esau. He promises the messianic lineage to plain old Leah, not beautiful Rachel. He chooses the stammering Moses instead of the well-spoken Aaron to deliver his people. He chooses barren Hannah to bring Israel's greatest prophet instead of the fertile Penine. Human history always favors the most beautiful, the strongest, the most charismatic. God chooses the Jacobs, the Leahs, the Hannahs, and the puny Davids to build his kingdom. See, Adrian Rogers says this is good news and bad news. The good news is God can use you. The bad news is if you're talented and pretty and strong, you're probably not his first choice. But he can still use you. God uses the unlikely. He uses the underdog and the overlooked. Second thing, uh, God wants us to, to learn from this. And Lexi, don't get excited. I know I went through that first point pretty quick. Third one's pretty long. Uh, second thing God wants us to know is God, in God's kingdom, character is what matters. In God's kingdom, character is what matters. Look back at verse number 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. When God looks for people to use, he doesn't look to things that we value the most. He prioritizes character over charisma. Because we need a king that can restore us to God. See, our main problem is it that we're not strong enough, that we're not smart enough, that we're not pretty enough? If that was it, God would give us a king that could supply those things for us. If the problem was we weren't strong enough, he'd give us a strong king. Our biggest problem is we are separated from God by pride and disobedience. That means we need a king that can reconnect us to God. See, God doesn't want us finding our identity and our security and our happiness in things apart from Him. He doesn't want us finding those things in a Saul or in a Liab. He wants us to find those things in Him. So He is the power. He is the beauty. He is the significance that we need. He is the security we need in our life. And so when He is choosing someone to use, He doesn't pick someone with obvious strengths. He chooses those that depend on Him because those are the people that the Spirit of God can work through. That's what happened here in verse number 13. Because of David's humble heart. Because David is, is just a shepherd boy. He's the forgotten. 
He's the least important in his family, but he's faithful doing his job. He's faithful obeying his father. He's faithful walking with God. So because of that, he doesn't look the part, he doesn't act the part, but because of his heart with God, the Spirit of God rushes in on him and stays on him. And we said in the first week that Israel's search for king for a king is, is really representative of mankind's search for salvation. Everybody in the world wants identity. They want security. They want happiness. And those are things that God has promised we find in salvation with Him and a relationship with Him. You know, we tend to look for them in the Saul's and the Elias of the world. We look for things that are tall and handsome and charming. Things that make us feel strong and secure. Maybe your king is money. If you make a certain amount of money, then you feel safe, you feel secure, you feel you feel you're represented, and so your, your king is your money. And we all choose a king that looks good to us, and we give ourselves to pursuing that king. But every king outside of God is going to let us down. And that's seen throughout the Bible. We look for salvation in all the wrong places. We have since the very beginning. Remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve are deceived. They're not deceived because... They, they, they got tricked. They, they looked at the fruit and it looked like something they had to have. It looked good to eat. It was beautiful to look upon. It looked good, but it led to death. You know, Proverbs 14 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There's a way to all of us that looks good, that looks promising, but it only leads to death. The universal human mistake is we look for salvation in the wrong places. God is teaching Israel through this that salvation only comes from being restored to fellowship with God. When it comes to being united with God, character is paramount. That's the main lesson, but there's another application. When we are evaluating people, whether it's we're looking for a spouse, we're looking for a boss, we're looking for a pastor, whatever it is, when we're looking for these kinds of things, uh, where was I? No, I'm not on point there. I'm on point two. Um, all right. When, when we're looking for other people, when we're evaluating other people, we tend to evaluate them the way Israel did their potential kings. We look for the people who, who look the best, uh, people who have the most talents, uh, people who can make us the most money. And that's a terrible way to go through life. See, character brings more blessing in your life than beauty ever could. Tim Keller uh, tells a story. He says, how many times have you heard a guy say, and he thinks it's romantic, the moment I saw her, I knew I was going to marry her. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Sounds romantic, doesn't it? Tim Keller says it's stupid. Uh, he says, that sounds romantic, but it's horrible. You don't know what she's like. Is she a woman of integrity? How does she handle conflict? Does she hold a grudge? Is she obsessive? You don't even know if she's an axe murderer. All you know is she's pretty. That's not romantic. That's stupid. Look, looks don't matter in marriage. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not. Don't get mad at me here. Because April's like, you saying I'm ugly? No, no, no. I'm not saying, you know, pick, you know, the ugliest dog in the fight. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying what's more important than how handsome a guy is or how beautiful a woman is how much does she love God? Is she going to draw you close to God? Is she going to bring you closer to God? Or are they going to drive you away? Oh, but they're, 
But he's so handsome, I can change him. No, you can't. She's so beautiful, I can change her. No, you can't. You can't change a woman. I've, I've learned that after 25 years of marriage. You can't change her. Prioritize character in your evaluation of people. That means you've got to build your own character. What makes you beautiful in God's eyes and others' eyes is not your star quality. It's not your uniqueness. What makes you beautiful in God's eyes is your character, your heart for Him. Your willingness to obey Him. That's what matters. So here's the third part, third point. I'm on that. Uh, God builds characters in the gaps. Verse 13 ends with David. Samuel's got his hand on David's head. He's anointing him with oil, making him the next king. The, the Spirit rushes upon him. And then that story ends, and we get a gap. Look at verse number 14. <clears throat> but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, that can, that can read kind of confusing. The Spirit comes upon David, so obviously it leaves Saul. So that's you know, instantaneous, right? No, no, keep reading. And Saul's servant said unto him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp, and it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, they shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well, and bring him to me. Then answered one of his servants and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, that is cunning and plain, and a mighty, valiant man, and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, Send me that David thy son, which is with the sheep. Now, before, before chapter verse 13, David's this ruddy, unimportant, forgotten, red-headed kid. Now, he is a valiant man of battle. Now, he is some... Look, look at how I describe him again. Uh, he is a cutting and plain and a mighty, valiant man and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person. He's still, he's still good-looking. He's still handsome, but he's no longer a little boy. He's a strong man. He's a valiant man. He has grown up. It has been years since that day with Samuel was anointed king of Israel. It's been years since that happened. But when they come to find David, where is he at? He's with the sheep. He's still doing his job. He's still being faithful. He's the God-chosen king of Israel. And he's finally starts after Goliath. And he gets a name and people start singing, man, Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his ten thousands. David killed one dude. Uh, but they start praising. And David starts to become famous and, and well-known. And people start noticing David. Saul gets jealous and spends ten years hunting him down to kill him. And there's some funny stories in there that Samuel, Saul is having a, a fit, David's playing the harp, and he throws a javelin at him uh, to pin him to the wall. And it's so funny the way the Bible says it, that Saul tries to pin him to the wall to kill him. Like, no doubt. You know, you don't, you don't, it's like the story uh, in Judges where the woman nailed a guy through his temple, nailed him to the ground with a tent bike, and he died. It's like, thank you, Captain Obvious. But so for ten years, David's being chased by Saul 
running for his life. Uh, imagine being David at that time. I'm the, I'm the God-ordained king of Israel. I felt the Spirit come upon me. Where is God now? Did God make a mistake? No, God didn't make a mistake. He used the pasture to prepare David for leadership. This is where God builds character in your life. In the gaps. When you think he is quiet is where he's building your character. Chuck Swindoll says there are three words that characterize David's time in the pasture. Obscurity. No one paid attention to David. He was forgotten. He's with the sheep. Monotony. All he did was watch sheep, practice on his harp, and work on his slingshot aim. And then reality. In the pasture, God developed David's skills with the slingshot that he would later use to defeat Goliath. In the pasture, David worked on his harp skills, which he would later become the greatest songwriter in the history of Israel. He developed courage where he could stand before Goliath and say, I, I've experienced God's power. He's enabling me to be a lion. He's enabling me to be a man. You're nothing as long as I have God. He learned humility, taking care of the sheep, and he would never forget where he came from like Saul did. Because of the pasture, he learned to be patient, and he learned to care for people. Because of the pasture, he learned to trust God because he saw God always kept his promises. That's how David could write in Psalm 72. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. That was God, that's what God does in our lives today. He builds character in the pasture. When God seems silent, that's when he's doing the biggest work in our lives. Faithfulness in the small things produces power for good things. So when God wants to prepare you for something, He sends you to the pasture. When God's getting ready to do something in your life, He may go quiet for a while. He's not left you. He's not forgotten about you. He's doing something in your life. Expect gaps in your life where it seems like God isn't doing anything. But know that He is. You know, there are huge gaps in Jesus' life. We see Him when He's born, obviously, but... We don't see him again until he's a toddler, two or three years later. You know, the nativity scenes with the wise men and the baby Jesus, they're wrong. I'm not going to, you know, kick you out for that. But, you know, the wise men didn't come until he was two or three years old. So we get a birth, two or three years later, we get him again. Then we don't see him again until he's 12. And he's at the temple teaching. Then we don't see him again until he's 30. Was God just doing nothing in his life at that time? No, God was preparing him for the great job that he had before him. He prepared him to love man and was preparing him to die in our place. He was preparing him to absorb the wrath of God for our sin. That's why after he's you know, this huge event, he's baptized by John the Baptist. The Spirit of God comes down like a dove. God says, this is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye Him. You know where God go, where Jesus goes after that? He goes to the desert. All by himself for 40 days. Another gap. God was preparing him for the incredible work. Preparing him to die on the cross for us. Preparing him to rise again as a sinless sacrifice to restore us to God the Father. You know, I want you to take two things away from the message this morning. 
Number one, don't despise the gaps in your life. Whatever pasture, whatever wilderness you're in, know that God is working in you. God is using the gaps to make you like David. To make you a man after His own heart. Be faithful in the pasture. Remember when we first meet Saul? He's a shepherd too. But he lost his father's donkeys. He's a bad shepherd. He's a failed shepherd. But David is a faithful shepherd. He's faithful in the little things. And faithfulness in the little things brings faithfulness in bigger things. God took David from a pasture and made him a king. Look, David's job didn't change. His flock did. As a king, he's still a shepherd. He's got different sheep to look after. Don't waste the gaps. David was intentional in the field when God seemed silent. He prayed in the field. He worshipped God in the field. He spent time in the field with God. He wouldn't have become David if he spent time on TikTok and watching TV. If he just said, well, God's not talking, so I'm not going to walk with God, he wouldn't have been David. Don't ignore God in the gaps. Second thing I want you to know, thing with one of those is don't miss Jesus in the gaps. You know, these stories, they're not about us. They're not even about primarily David. You know, we tend to do that. We look at the stories and we see David and Goliath and think, oh man, I'm David and, you know, my problems are Goliath. And that's a... No, 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 you're not David in that story. You're Goliath in that story. You're the evil guy in that story. You're never the good guy in the Bible. Always look for Jesus in these stories and look for Jesus in the gaps. You know, when I read, when I read, uh, when I read that God, in verse 7, where it says God looks on the heart, I don't know about you, but I don't find that very encouraging. Because I know my heart. And I know if God's looking at my heart and God sees what my heart's really like, I'm in trouble. Because I know what my heart is really like. Even on my best days, my heart is bad. It's, it's fearful. It's judgmental. It's selfish. It's unkind. It's unforgiving. My heart may be willing to bend the truth a little bit to kind of fix a problem. You know, imagine if we walked around all week long and there was a little LED display over our head that showed everything we were thinking and what was really in our heart. How many of y'all would ever leave the house? No, you would not. Because I know what's in your heart, young man. Anyway, uh, you know, but here's the thing. That's what God sees. And I want a good heart. But I know my heart isn't good enough for God. My heart would not allow me to fellowship with God. And here's the thing. David's heart wasn't any better. He was a man after God's own heart. He filled the Spirit. His heart's no better than my heart. You know how I know why? Because, yeah, David's got some great victories, but David's got some great sin. And I'm just glad my sin's not recorded in the eternal Word of God where we can study it and even get to heaven and ask David, what do you think with that Bathsheba thing? You know, I'm, glad, I'm glad I don't get to heaven and David says, all right, Menix, let's look at your sins. Woo, we need four more chapters here because there's a lot of them. David's story points us to Jesus and his story. David wasn't the likely choice. Neither was Jesus. David... You know, he, he's, a, he's a poor boy and a shepherd. Jesus is a poor boy and a carpenter's son. Both of them were anointed by God. Both were filled with the Spirit of God. And both were used 
by God. David was used by God after being filled with the Spirit to kill Goliath. Jesus was used to heal the sick, to raise the dead, and to walk on water. After David is anointed, he goes to the pasture. After Jesus is anointed, or the baptism, he goes to the wilderness. There are a lot of parallels between Jesus but between Jesus and David, but Jesus was a perfect man of character. David was a flawed man. He loved God, he was faithful to God, but he was flawed. Jesus was perfect. David ended up in the palace, Jesus ended up on the cross. He's our shepherd, and we're his sheep. He was truly a man after God's own heart. Jesus was. He died for all the ways that I am not a man after God's own heart. So that when I receive His death, burial, and resurrection as payment for my sins, I'm looked at like a man after God's own heart. He died in the ways I wasn't a man after God's own heart so I could be received by God like one. Through His death, burial, and resurrection, I can hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know, we all have gaps. What we do with them makes a difference in eternity. Pray, Heavenly Father. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.